0: Welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Sarah Bae Jung of Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Sarah, how are you doing out there?
1: I'm well. I'm well. It's finally snowing again. How are you, Panel?
0: That's good. I always, every time I picture Maine, I picture snow or lakes or loon or something like that. I'm glad it's snowing. And I'm also joined by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you? I'm doing great. And yourself? I'm pretty great. You've been traveling a lot recently. You're most recently back from
2: L.A., is that right? I've been back and forth between Chicago and L.A. four times now <laughs> in the last oh week. <laughs> so.
0: It's a lot of, lot of frequent flyer miles you're hopefully racking up. So today on the podcast, we will be discussing, first of all, this podcast. Uh, what is it? What are we doing? What have we done what is on tap, and what do we hope that it will be accomplishing? Uh, we will talk about Joseph Roach's *Cities of the Dead*. Twenty years on from its initial publication, uh, we reread this field-changing book, and we're going to ask to what extent we think it continues to reflect concerns and methods of theater and performance studies scholars. And finally, the job market, 2015-2016, what is it that current job openings uh, say or don't say about trends in the field? Before we get to those segments, we'll do the news roundup. First, the Dogs of Astor calendar. Uh, this is a bit of an old news item since it's February of 2016. Um, but Kate Bredesen's inspired project pairing iconic photographs from theater and performance history with no less iconic photographs of contemporary dogs, um, is still available. I love this project. Um, I talked to Kate and there are copies still available. You can go to lulu.com and search for Kate Bredesen, uh, or search for dogs of Aster and get yourself one of these very exciting publications.
2: Now, is this the follow up to cats of Aster or is this the sequel to it? I mean, which came first cats or dogs?
0: I haven't seen cats of Aster. Is cats of Aster a real thing?
2: I thought so. I could have sworn I, on maybe Facebook it's someone follow. posted a series of pictures of cats um, uh, yeah. photoshopped into historical theater scenarios.
0: Yeah, I, I will have to do a, an investigation into this. If I had to, I think that Dogs of Astor is the only physically existing calendar. But maybe in the future we'll be seeing a Cats of Astor calendar.
1: I seem to think that Kate started K- Dogs of Aster via Facebook first and then there were some cats of Aster floating around there also, but, uh, but I could have that backwards.
0: I, I'm a I dog we'll, person myself, so. <laughs> we'll, we'll investigate, and, and hopefully we will be having, you know, Aster calendars that, that go through the entire animal kingdom.
1: Indeed. Lizards of uh, Aster.
0: <laughs> Lizards. Hamsters. Um, hamsters of Aster. It, it Really, the possibilities are... They're literally endless. So it is uh, grad application time. There's a big spread, I've noticed, in the dates, the due dates of um, applications to PhD programs. Earliest deadlines this year, I think, were, I think the earliest one was November 30th, and they go right through the middle of January. And now uh, interviews are underway, and so we're in the thick of um, graduate application season. Uh, you know,
1: one thing about that panel, I don't know. If this is true at Northwestern, but I know this was true when I was at the University of Buffalo, and I would expect that it may be true elsewhere. One of the reason for some of those early deadlines is because there's internal funding for exceptional applications. Okay. So depending on who, who you're talking to, but it's particularly your sort of MA, I, I always think that the earlier is better because it earlier applications that were strong usually had a better chance of extra funding. I don't know. Is that true at Northwestern also? No,
2: not really. Basically, I think we just have early application. We have have a late December deadline, and that's so that everything's in uh, for when we return post-break.
0: Next, Esther and Atha have received funding to create a new award, um, the atha Esther Excellence in Digital Scholarship Award. Um, The deadline for this, I believe, is February 15th. Sarah, do you want to say anything more about
1: this? Uh, No, just that... uh Well, so I'm chair of the awards committee, and I'm really thrilled to be able to to offer this. I think it's part of what a lot of organizations are doing, but I'm delighted that Atha and Aster are moving forward in terms of recognizing projects that are ongoing, but also hopefully encouraging similar projects to emerge.
0: And the last thing I have in the news roundup, uh, again, it's a little bit of an older story. I think this was reported at the end of 2015, but there is a new uh, curator of the Harvard Theater Collection at uh, the Houghton Library at Harvard. Um, Matthew Whitman was named the new curator. And there's a link to the press release coming out of Harvard that we'll put on our website on tappod.com. So you can check that out. I think uh, Mr. Whitman previously was an assistant curator of coins and currency at the American numismatic society but he also has been involved in large exhibitions of uh, the archival remnants of circuses and so he seems like he'll be a great person to um, take the curatorial reins of that very important theater collection. In each Edition of this podcast, we will take on three substantial uh, topics in individual segments, and we are kicking it off by treating ourselves as being a substantial topic. But we wanted to just have an opportunity to explain a little bit of background about what this podcast uh, endeavor is. In a straightforward way, what this is is an Audio chat show with um, Sarah and Harvey and myself. It is about the academic field of theater and performance studies. We'll pick out uh, in each recording three topics that we think will be of interest to students and professors and uh, independent scholars and anyone else with a, a particular interest in theater and performance studies. Part of the idea is to include uh, people who are tied into the field at different sites and to record in a fairly casual way uh, a conversation that anyone in the field might want to listen in on. And so we'll talk about... A variety of types of topics. We definitely will um, engage with ideas, with recent publications. We're going to be looking at trends in the profession. So what's going on with hiring, graduate training, publication, um, pedagogy, artist-scholar dynamics. Um, And so I think the hope is to create a new node of communication across specialties and across institutional identities Um, and you know we hope that it will be fun to listen to and fun to record as well so harvey sarah you guys agreed to get in this rickety boat with me I thought that I would ask you guys what you were thinking. So, Harvey, uh, when I reached out to you and asked you to be part of this podcast, why did you not politely decline or pretend that your cell phone connection was bad and then hang up on me?
2: Oh, well, because it's it's amazing to think that I get to spend more time talking with both you, panel, and Sarah, right? It's absolutely fantastic. And when you think about it, the very best things about our field and the conferences we go to um, are those conversations you have at the bar, in the hallway, in the lobby. So this is a chance to make that a year-round activity rather than something that happens once or twice a year.
0: Yes, we do hope that it will be bar-like, the on-tap name. We will mine that pun. I mean, just
2: relentlessly. I'm sure we will drink uh, and talk.
0: We will drink and talk. I forgot my beer. Actually, you can't get a beer in the uh, the building where my office is. Um, but we hope to talk as though it seems like we're drinking.
1: We'll get. We'll just start to slur more towards the end of every podcast <laughs> to create a, an appropriate impression.
0: That will probably be true. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Harvey. You know, I, I in response to what you said, I did. I do think that the. Yeah, I mean part of the way I think that this can be unique and, and serve a unique role is that the way that we are trained and the way we're accustomed to communicating in our field is to work very hard and for the most part in a very individualized manner on a very special topic and work for years sometimes crafting just the right thing to say about a very um you know, specific thing. And our conferences and our, you know, the the institutions that produce the knowledge, publish, et et cetera, serve that process very well. But sometimes I feel as though the communications in conferences, aside from what's going on in the bars and the hallways, can be a bit frustrating that, you know, there's often a kind of dynamic where, you know, one asks a question that has to do with one's own research and does not directly engage with the arguments being presented at the at the presentation and i think you know i'm interested in seeing if we can create a, a bird's eye view on the field that helps all three of us keep cognizant of what's going on in areas that we're not necessarily uh deep on and well you know um, i think
1: panel i think this is a great opportunity not just to kind of expand on the conference and that side of conversation but to also uh tap into if you will Uh, The performative part of, of our work, because many of us came to the research that we do not exclusively through solitary research and books, but through collaborative conversations and performances whether those were specifically in theaters or elsewhere. So I think, for me, this is an exciting opportunity to return theater and performance scholarship to some of the passionate origins that it came from, which is the ability to interact with other people, to build something collaboratively, and to perform for an audience.
0: Yeah, it is a a sort of experimental art form and experimental communication. Um, Uh, Panel,
1: I have a question about that, actually. Are we... (laughs) Is there a mechanism for people to propose topics, post questions, uh, interact with how we develop the podcast if they're interested?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we will, um, as this is released, there will be a website um, on tappod.com where you can enter your email address and, and, and get on a list. Uh, for the moment, however, the way to communicate with us, I think, will be through the Facebook page. So we will have a Facebook page. you like it. Um, And there will be a way on that on that page for you to comment and and suggest topics and, you know, reply to what we've said. Um, And we hope that people who are listening will absolutely do that, because we between the three of us, we have a wide range of research interests. We know different parts of the field. We know different institutions to varying degrees, but we still can't keep up on everything that is really interesting to large numbers of people in other areas and other specialties. And so I really hope that people will get in touch with us through Facebook, Twitter as well, and and suggest topics and and communicate to us so we can respond in a dynamic fashion to other people's interests. I I guess I could pose the same sort of question to you, Sarah. What do you foresee as, I don't know, a kind of ideal version of what this will be
1: well, I I think this and and kudos to you panel for for coming up with the idea and, and proposing it originally. I think it's a it's a great opportunity, as Harvey said for personally, to have an interesting conversation with two people I like and respect tremendously. Uh, but I also think it has the opportunity to open up different venues uh, and uh, you know a new venue of conversation in the field. And I do hope that that we'll be able to respond to things here that perhaps don't have another access point in whether it's different kinds of publications or are happening in private conversations, but might be valuable if given a, a wider airing. Uh, I think we also, the three of us, may be speaking from a position where we can say things that others you know, may not be able to say in quite the same way. So uh, I look forward to that as well.
0: Yeah, I hope that one, one thing that I have thought is that um, I'm hoping that graduate students will uh, want to listen. You know, we want to talk about we're going to talk about a mixture of ideas and um, aspects of the profession, aspects of pedagogy, things that you don't need to be a specialist in a particular topic to wonder about or want to talk about. 20 years ago last month, January 1996, Joseph Roach's groundbreaking Cities of the Dead Circum-Atlantic Performance was published and proceeded to make waves in numerous fields, certainly theater and performance studies included, but also 18th century studies. So we decided that we would reread this book 20 years later and um, see how it looks. Sarah, what was it like for you revisiting uh, this book?
1: Well, I, I really, really appreciate that you raise this. I realized as I started reading that I don't think I ever read this book cover to cover. I had previously read pieces of it, usually, as many of us do uh, in graduate yes. school, tied to certain topics uh, or mm-hmm. questions or papers that I was working on, and, and certainly it's, it's remarkable for its range of topics and information and the depth and the connections that Roach makes um, among numerous topics. But I also was struck mostly in a kind of reading it, and I read it in in very few sittings because I was doing some flying and I had big chunks of time. So I read it uh, in maybe two or three kind of continuous settings, just how beautifully coherent the prose and the argumentation and structure of the book is and mm-hmm. i think lots of times we talk about the quality and and books and their importance in terms of their content the ideas but but this is one that actually in terms of its prose and and the the structure and the form of the book also i find is a is a great model and one that that i'll go back to again and again
0: yeah i mean the way the 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 quality of the prose, the quality of the writing is one of those features that you just can't. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to think of anyone else who writes um, this beautifully or more beautifully and I think the way that Joe Roach writes makes a kind of a seemingly effortless merger of performance history and cultural anthropology and uh, you know an old school historiography, all of these different all of these different objects that you wouldn't think would fit together um, makes it seem like they just completely belong together. So absolutely, that's something that struck me. And
1: that's, well. I mean, that's something that I was reading a bunch of uh, uh, book reviews from when the book first came out. And that's, that's something that I think comes up time and time again from any number of different fields. And, and it's really, it's striking to see how many different sort of disciplines comment on it. What do yeah. you think, Harvey?
2: I thought it was great to reread the book. I had realized that I had not actually read the book cover to cover in in, in a long time, probably not since graduate school. Um, Since then, I've read bits and pieces (laughs) of it, Mm -hmm. right? And in some cases, reread paragraphs uh, to remember an argument. Uh, But there's a coherence, as you you noted, across the whole book. And what I found fascinating now, uh, looking at the book again, is how... So much of our contemporary scholarship depends upon *Cities of the Dead* uh, to the point where you read it and you're like, "Oh, I can now see some of the roots of later work on uh, haunting or twice of or or sort of reenacted performances and um, Mm -hmm. uh, other types of uh, ways in which we look at the haunting effects of souvenirs." And and I think that it all ties itself back to *Cities of the Dead*, which is fascinating.
1: I have a question for both of you. Uh and and this may be just sort of belying my own ignorance, but is this this certainly is one of the important books tying theater history to performance studies, although it's not I don't know that it was noted as such when it when it happened, but is is there another book that that came before that, or was this the one that really did that or maybe even just did it in the biggest, you know, most visible way?
0: It's a good question. I think you know, reading it sort of out of context and and ha- with sort of hazy memories of the 90s. I mean, I was an undergraduate when it first came out, so in a way, I don't remember a field before this deliberate merger of performance studies and theater history. I think of it. I think of it as being the book that that really, you know, where a theater historian takes on performance studies, concepts, and methodologies thoroughly, thoroughly. I think it's interesting to question question to what extent this even is a work of theater history. I mean, when you, when I thought about the book before having begun to reread it, theater plays, that was not, that, that was not on the list of things that I remember the book being about. And of course, in reading it, there's the whole chapter on Thomas Betterton, and there's you know, extensive discussions of, you know, operas and plays, Shakespeare. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of theater history in it. Um, but in certain ways, it's a break from the methods of, of theater history.
1: I, I'm curious to, to hear you say that. I mean, I think you're much more of a theater historian than I am. So um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more, because I'm thinking of his chapter on the octoroon, which seems right. to me to be absolutely a work of theater history and and also a kind of dramatic criticism in, in terms of its sort of literary analysis of the text and so what are the what are the methods, panel, that you see as as being sort of emblematic of theater history that that, that Roach moves away from or that don't don't figure in this book in the same way that they do in other in other texts?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, said, I know it, I said it was moving away from the methods of theater history, and I'm not sure that it's methods so much as it's the positioning of the objects um, and the elaboration of the argument at the outset. When you read that introduction, he is connecting this sort of site, you know, contemporary New Orleans, 1990 New Orleans, back to the early, early um, 18th century. London Um, and the you know the spectator and the tattler of uh, Addison and Steele are these kind of texts that permeate the whole book Um, and of course that uh, you know uh, Steele and Addison wrote about theater and Addison wrote plays these are all figures that are familiar from theater history but um, the types of performance that he is doing the work of uh, seizing and analyzing and Making rendering into a form where he can build arguments out of them are what we think of now as cultural performance, Um, you know, funerary rites, um, you know, parades, all the different, you know, sort of categories of popular entertainment and everyday life. I mean, that's the work of the introduction. And in a way, it leaves the theater historiography component out, perhaps as though, You know, Roach at that moment is not thinking that he needs to explain what a theater history, what a theater historian does. But I think of the major sites of intervention in this not being theater history in the way we should understand plays and how they function to produce cultural meaning or create public groups. So much as a way of understanding the way the past and past economic relationships and past cultural and social relationships continue to emerge in the present. I mean, I think it's a big I think you you sort of have to keep reading into the body chapters to realize how much theater is in it, and it doesn't you know it, it doesn't it doesn't announce as much at the beginning that this is a work that really thinks theater is is integral to telling the story um, as as much as other things.
2: Right. I mean, my sense of it is that yeah, it, it doesn't aim, as you're saying, panel to be a a work of theater history, right? Uh, but what. Joe is doing with this book, or in retrospect, what he seems to have done with this book, uh, is to outline a method of performance criticism, right? Uh, to, to say, you know, here's a framework uh, with which we can uh, read a variety of sort of case studies and historical engagements, right? And let's look at loss and how that relates to memory and how that invites and evokes performance, right? And, and that sort of that three-step process uh, becomes applicable to everything, um, which I think is really helpful and useful uh, because it's not a binary; it's not it's either this or that. Um, and he creates a way of thinking about criticizing, theorizing the indeterminate, the in between. And I like that about this book.
0: I, I agree with you that I think it, it provides a model for the ways that um, a whole range of behavior and cultural forms can be unified and thought of in, in terms of the other. In my experience, it is actually sort of difficult for students uh, to take these concepts and apply them to their own work. I think you know one of the one of the things about this book is that it shows off Joe uh, Joe's mind at its fullest powers, and it's just incredible the levels of you know the the amount of information. Um, the, the uh, capacity he has to translate different theoretical languages into each other, um, his memory, um, his, you know, prose style, it all works at the same time to create this incredibly compelling uh, account of how two, you know, it's, it's much more than just these two poles, but in terms of this, you know, historical locations and sites that he's looking at, 1990s New Orleans and, you know, 17-teens London, these are not things that you think, these are not places and times that you think are integrally related to each other, um, but he makes it so <laughs> in the in the argumentation of the reading. But as part of that work, he, de- he creates these concepts and deploys them, and we're all familiar with them now, you know, effigy, surrogation, um, kinesthetic imagination, vortices of behavior, and in it, um, synthetic experience. These are incredibly useful, and I th- but I think that, at least in some of the papers that I've read that deal with Roach, it's when they're in someone else's hands, <laughs> they're hard to apply. It's hard- I think it's hard for someone of a lesser mind, frankly, to take what he has created and then apply it to other projects. Well, this raises
1: um, a, I mean, you, you point out, a, I think what's a really interesting, maybe even like a paradox of the field is that many times the most useful Books are the are less perfect than than others, right? There are openings and right. gaps and problems that particularly students or you know, uh, frankly, any of us, right, have a kind of we can get kind of a toehold in and, and push back against. And I think one of the things that's very difficult in this work is that uh, I think you can trace a lot of Roach's thinking, to uh evolving and 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 his citations of you know the diasporic aspect of and uh, evolution of transatlantic uh race studies and uh that come out of history and also i mean he mentions paul gilroy a number of times uh and his really he you know he was really pioneering in terms of opening up you know and this kind of linking both francophone and anglophone uh african diaspora in interesting ways but but I think that part of what so what you know Roach does so beautifully is is that his prose really I think maybe even like makes these kinds of seamless presentations that can be hard to kind of grapple with. Whereas those of us who who don't work at that level perhaps leave many more interesting openings for students and and others to enter and and engage with.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's I think there's something to that. I mean, um, it's you know and and the book is not without its critics and it's i you know don't mean to suggest that i don't think it's just an incredible accomplishment and one that's probably shaped our field now more than as much or more than any other single book but there is a kind there is a way that the in that introduction the the special concepts the sort of you know methodological apparatus i don't know if it's, it's not methodological but it's a kind of you know the the conceptual scaffolding and and uh, that apparatus that he uses to enable him to make claims about the links between all of these differently spaced things starts to take on a life of its own there are some sentences where you know he's describing kinesthetic imagination and cultural memory in terms of the other concepts and it begin you know you you Again, it with a writer of his level, it it's not a problem. It, it's clear you get what's going on, but it begins to take a sort of life of its the, the the you know special terms begin to take on sort of a life of their own, and then you know there's a there's another tradition of criticizing this book which has to do with the way that it leaps historical periods. You know, it, it he does not make trans historical claims, but they're kind of quantum historical that something about. Thomas Betterton's status as a shadow king helps us understand, you know, uh, the, the 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 Mardi Gras Rex. You know that there's something that there's something meaningful about the relationship of these things that are separated by centuries and centuries. And he makes it convincing, but you know he's not without critics in terms of the way that you know it seems to validate a kind of historical claim that is very tough to um, provide. Solid evidence for
1: can i can I go back to something you said though uh, I think you said about this book that it it has influenced the field more than any other. Did I hear that correctly? um yeah, I think
0: I said that and, or as much as okay, okay so
1: here's <laughs> here's my question like i'm yeah. not prepared to disagree with you necessarily yeah uh but really do we i mean like and well, and I, it, uh, more than kind of making a contest, I wonder like can we think of other Uh, you know, other works that have, have had as, as big, if not more of an impact. I don't know. I mean, mean, it's a weird thing to kind of quantify, but.
0: I'll say this. I'm an 18th century, theater historian, you know, no one probably looms larger in my subfield than Joe Roach does. His impact in terms of his other work is sort of transcends the subfield of 18th century England or 18th century theater studies. I think from my, from where I am sitting in the field, it's hard to think of someone more influential or a book that changed the rules of the game as much as this. I will confess to having, you know, a side of my career, which is sort of doing a single white, single white female on Joe Roach. Um, You know, I'm conscious of trying, you know, wanting to imitate him in certain ways, but not, you know, too much. Um, But I don't know Uh, the archive in the repertoire. What other books have been, you know, that, that field shaping,
2: My sense of it is that we as academics tend to take a concept and then link it to a scholar, right? So surrogation equals Joe Roach, right? Twice behave performance equals Schechner. Uh, And and we do that. Repertoire um, equals Diana Taylor. Uh, And there's a way in which When we use those terms and those concepts, we automatically uh, link them and tie them necessarily so to these individuals, uh, so that that creates this foundational set of readings and texts and sources uh, that inspire the field.
0: And in a way, this book doesn't work that way because there's not. I mean, what is the chapter that you assign from this book? It, It kind of is a whole. There's not a kind of. There's not a manifesto. There's not a polemic in this that. Um, you cite as a a way of sort of consciously directing the way people work. It's a kind of demonstration of all sorts of amazing things that one can do and be a theater scholar.
2: Yes, but I also think that there's and this is also the challenge of the book in terms of how you access it as um, a a student, grad student, faculty member. So how do you sort of wrestle with all these concepts that Joe offers? And I think in some cases what people do is they uh, take the Cliff's Notes approach, <laughs> right, which is uh, you, pa- you, you, you paraphrase the summary that uh, surfaced in a graduate seminar, uh, and then that reduces uh, the book to an, a concept or two. But we do that with all books, right? Uh, that um, mm-hmm. archive in the repertoire, for example, for Taylor, uh, mm-hmm. people refer to that first chapter and rarely address the remainder of that book. You know, mm-hmm. So we, when do people cite 9-11 in Taylor, which is part of that same book, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think we did the same thing with Roach, too.
0: And, and it can be a strategy in when you're writing, you know, one, uh, speaking for myself, but I know I'm not the only one, one can wish, you know, that one worked in a way where you create this powerful concept, um, you know, Robin Bernstein's scriptive behavior, something that once it's communicated and demonstrated in a work of history, er, you know, you read that and you're like, ah, of course, and oh, there's a million other things that work exactly this way, and you can apply it in all sorts of ways i just don't know, i don't know that you know effigy and surrogation i feel like they're so closely tied to the very specific work he does that it's hard to pop them out and so in that way maybe it's not you know if we're trying to rate the most influential most cited most you know broadly applicable in terms of their way of working books maybe this is not at the very
2: top but I think I the key thing is that, you know, anyone who's listening in and who will join the conversation on Facebook should offer suggestions for yeah. concepts and That's keywords right. that we can promote. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's, it's true.
0: So the job market, 2015, 2016, we are not only in the midst of graduate interview season and Esther working session season and all of that great stuff, but we are right in the middle of uh, the job market, job hunt season. Um, uh, There are, you know, a variety of resources that we can look at, a variety of things that might hint at if they're you know hint at trends or um, important overall developments in terms of the job market. Um, Harvey, do you want to tell us what this job market looks like to you?
2: Yeah, totally. There there are a lot of senior openings this year, which is which is rare. It's it's uh, not common for the academic job, mar- job market to feature. Uh, positions for tenured faculty uh, much less full professors right uh, and we're in this moment where there are easily a half a dozen universities uh, that are looking to hire senior uh, faculty uh, to huh. replace uh, some senior retirement such as ucla uh, looking to hire a person uh, to uh-huh. fill the tenure line currently occupied by sue ellen case and i think that begs the question what does that mean for the field, uh, not only to have so many senior openings, uh, but also what does it promise in terms of a shift in terms of faculty uh, going from one place to another place to lead and chart new directions uh, at universities, such as UCLA, uh, being perhaps the divisional dean at um, uh, University of Washington, uh, Duke, uh, Pittsburgh. There's so many places like this. So I think that's something to consider. What does it mean to have this opening at the senior level.
0: That is interesting. And so, I mean, I guess the, one of the questions is whether or not that uh, we're going to see a sort of reshuffling of people and institutions at the senior levels that will then shake down next year into more openings. I remember being a graduate student and always looking at the field and thinking, oh, I mean, it's very ghoulish really, but thinking, oh, all of these people are going to retire and then there'll be everyone will move up the ladder and there'll be so many great jobs that appear, but it, of course it never happens that yeah, way.
2: Yeah, yeah. When I, when I was a graduate student, uh, there was always that promise that uh, the professoriate was getting older uh, and <laughs> right. that people were going to retire, and then yeah. uh, various sort of financial economic uh, collapses yeah. uh, uh, encouraged people not to retire, so that wave of retirements never actually occurred. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't think it would ever happen. <laughs> I didn't ever think it would ever happen. Uh, but nice. now we're this moment where there's this there's quite a shuffle, and what does that mean for our field, Sarah? What do you think?
1: Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I too, you know, we I think we were in the same historical moment, Harvey. But the the idea of the the baby boomers were all getting ready to retire. I mean, I think was like sort of a myth of the of the mid to late nineties, uh, and. And I, I'd be curious, I haven't looked at the data on this, but I'd be curious how many senior hires, you know, on a yearly basis, turn over to junior untenured or to tenured positions. My sense is that, uh, or or move into other lines or get sort of broken up in other, in other ways. So um, I think, you know, you can obviously think certain advantages of maintaining a senior line in your department. You bring in you know, someone with perspectives, but who has from the beginning a certain kind of authority and uh, you know legitimacy. Like you're, you know, doesn't need a mentorship in the same way. Uh, but I think it's it's kind of exciting. It does also make you wonder. You know, as a as a senior person who recently just made a move, I think I think at a certain point you make those moves much more hesitantly, right? Because you know that the next move might not be coming for a while, if ever. Uh, and you know, you just become like, you know, probably your your expense to productivity level for many of us, you know, may start to tip in a, in an unfavorable ratio. So I, I I do kind of you know wonder at this. I also think it's I'm I'm delighted any time a tenure line stays as a tenure line, and I'm very mm-hmm. sympathetic to the argument that you know that it's not that we don't need faculty. There's actually quite a high demand for teaching and for faculty. What there isn't uh, a willingness to do is to pay for that. And so the increased adjunct and contingent faculty and qualified appointments I think continue to be a, a real drain on higher ed in general, but but also in our field as well.
0: That that's definitely one of the trends that you can see. I mean if you look at the the Atha research that Henry Byle um, Headed up into the job market for the past couple of years. It's one of the striking things. There's a you know a, a bar graph of um, faculty positions by tenure status, and from 2013 to 14 to 15, you see the number of um, tenured and tenured track positions going down, and the number of temporary, non tenured, um, uh, especially non tenured positions going up. It's interesting to me whether or not that you know w- whether or not we postulate that that phenomenon, just the decrease in the number of tenure line positions would also be contributing to problems where older, um, older faculty are retiring and there just aren't as many people who have been groomed at the you know, associate level to be ready to fill in those positions. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe that's part of why you're seeing these searches at the senior level, um, but it's certainly, it's obviously you know, lamentable for a variety of reasons.
2: So I, I have a question for both of you. What is your thought in terms of the state of our field or the future of our field uh, when we're at this moment when senior faculty are beginning to retire? Because in some places, at, at many universities, the reputation of that school, that program, uh, is closely aligned with the visibility uh, of, and reputation of a single person. So, so what do you think that this raft of retirements um, means for our future?
0: I don't know. I think, you know, one is tempted to sort of have this attitude of nostalgia and, well, they don't make them like that anymore. Um, But, uh, you know, there's a lot of talented people at the senior level and the mid-career level. I think, you know, uh, Tufts is an interesting situation where, you know, I think Lawrence Senlick's retirement, um, you know, was previewed and they brought in Heather Nathans. They brought in a lot of really strong junior faculty. And so I think in that way sort of really deliberately and successfully moved to guarantee the continued place of Tufts in the field as a, as a graduate training program. I do yeah. think,
1: from my perspective, I think that we see a similar line of argument in the whole decline of the public intellectual, right? That there just aren't these same kinds of big icons, right? And part of that is there aren't the same kinds of outlets and venues and attention right you know like there's just many more venues and opportunities for work to be published there's many more conversations the field i don't think uh gravitates around the same few centers and then sort of you know in which people um, emerge and and are sort of recognized as such and for me i think that's probably a good thing i i i think that in in many ways the you know having departments that are recognized for the quality of the ensemble is uh, within them is maybe preferable to having reputations tied to a single star. And I think that it's probably in the long range much healthier for students and and could be part of trying to stem or resist a trend towards, you know, a few people who have a very high profile, who are very well positioned, but uh, and then are supported by a lot of unrecognized or or less mm-hmm. well recognized people who are sort of doing the grunt work. I think sharing and equalizing that a little bit more could be really helpful, as well as the recognition that you know there are there are great programs, uh, but there are great people in programs that do not necessarily have the same kinds of reputation. And one of the things that I say to my undergraduate students and and to my you know, master's students who were looking at doctoral programs is like, you know, like w- look for the people that you want to work with and who are going to take the time and energy to to be with you and, and you know, try to pay less attention to the, the name on the door, which, you know, we all know is important. I'm not trying to discount, discount that. I think there was just the study that came out about, I think it was, was it history departments and science departments that like 50% of the tenure track jobs come from like 10 schools or something like that? Like the new hires. I'll look at that for next time. Anyway, that's yeah. my my, I, that's my Bernie Sanders populist, you know, <laughs> uh, income inequality think, I, in the, you know, yeah, university I, I,
0: I think it might also be related to specialization. I think we're probably more specialized and we have, you know, a strata of people working in specific ways and different, um, uh, I don't know, that just have sort of different niches worked out in the. Strange sort of hybrid world of of contemporary theater and performance studies, rather than you know four or five big legends who you know sort of dominate the reputation of a given school and whom everyone goes to to train with. Of course, this is all reminding me of the introduction to Cities of the Dead, which is precisely about what happens when someone retires and the little pieces of them that get appropriated and adopted as part of one's own professional profile. And I think that's always been tr- I mean, I think that is that does remain true, you know, if, if someone when when a, you know, vaunted, highly productive, highly influential senior scholar retires, the The research output, the mentoring, the you know sort of charisma—like there's just different parts of what a really dynamic scholar does that you know people might share the effort in. Um, I wanted to point out just a couple of things that I noticed going through the wiki list. There seemed to be several um, generalist positions. I think I think there were six or seven different jobs which were listed as generalist, and as you'd expect, these would be at smaller schools, but um, I thought that at least, you know, at least even the, I don't know, the the term generalist seems to be something that's a little bit antiquated. Um, and I, th- you know, what I read, I, a generalist, I guess, means someone without a specialty, but I think in these contexts, it means someone who can teach acting, directing, theater history, you know. Can I think it means
1: the, all the specialties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right.
0: Um, I thought that was remarkable. In terms of the numbers, you know, I looked at the previous wiki page the the t- 2014 fifteen wiki page ended up with ninety six positions that were tenure track um this year right now it's that number is seventy eight and that's probably not a very good you know exhaustive metric um, because you know when I think Athel looks at job listings that include art search and you know is less sort of studies centric than the wiki. I don't know if that means there's a dip in the number of jobs in this cycle as compared to last year. I mean, do you guys anecdotally, do you feel like graduate students and people on the market are feeling um, especially nervous this year?
2: My sense of it is that there are more jobs in the area of sort of history and criticism than there were last year. Uh, One of the challenges is the... uh, number of senior hires, right, which, you know, while it's great for uh, a person with tenure or on the verge of having tenure, um, uh, it's not that great, <laughs> you know, if you're a graduate student. Uh, so, it's, so, so that's something that people are concerned about. Uh, but, but really, my my takeaway from my conversations with my graduate students is that there's a greater sense of optimism about about the odds of, of, of landing a job because there are more positions that are not Restricted to specific specialties, right? This is not the year where people are looking for someone who studies um, a particular culture in a very specific time window.
0: Some interesting jobs out there, the Harvard job, right? Open rank, all specialties.
2: I've written appeared. so many letters for that Harvard job, staggering number of <laughs> letters. I've I bet people. you have.
0: Well, it, it that that appeared, I think, in like late September, and the deadline was, you know, early October. And of course, I think it's, you know, rolling consideration of
2: applications. But it I does, just hope they hire it, someone soon because I'm sort of I can't write any more right. recommendation letters. I'm just done.
0: <laughs> well, it makes it's if it's designed to make every single person in the field stop and think, like maybe they want me, maybe they're talking about me. Like like no matter where you are, who you are, an open rank, no specialty listed job that,
1: at Harvard. That's a bit it's, like saying that, you know, you can list, uh, you know, you were Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2007 because that was the year that they put you on the cover, yeah, right, 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 of the right. of the magazine, right? It's like, you know. Yeah,
0: uh, Every, everyone sees themselves reflected
2: in yes, that, yeah, that call
1: for application. Because it's you, we're looking for yeah. you.
2: I I remember talking to David Krasner back when he was at Yale, and he said that whenever Yale had an opening, there were like hundreds of people who apply, uh, and many of those hundreds were not even in the area of specialty. Uh, It was just someone was just like, sure, it's in theater, and I'm a chemist, but you never know. (laughs) So so that's part of that envisioning (laughs) of a possibility. That's great. Um, well, and
1: for that we can blame Joe Roach because you know he demonstrated <laughs> that the potential to link chemistry to theater history is there if you're just willing to look carefully enough and to you know have a, enough kinesthetic imagination that you can make that happen. So I I think we can all blame him.
0: It comes back to it comes back to Joe. It Roche all comes
1: again. back around. That's right.
0: It's it's hard. I'm glad that Atha is doing this research because there will be data um, going year to year, and rather than just a sort of subjective sense you have of whether the field is expanding or constric- or constricting or, um, you know, what have you, there'll be a sort of real sense of what's going on. in a field our size, which is not that big, you know, you can just have strange anomalies that make certain years bigger or smaller without there being really overall general trends. I still have the sense that our field is healthier in terms of job applications and growth than other fields. And again, this is completely unfounded by um data it's just anecdotal
2: yeah my my understanding from talking to chairs uh, of humanities departments uh, at different universities is that the enrollment in humanities is declining uh, but theater seems to be relatively stable uh, which is quite interesting compared to sort of english or history or other fields
0: finally we move to drafts and this is the segment on each uh edition where we um just talk about things that are on our minds um perhaps not fully formed ideas or research projects or even fully formed thoughts but uh what are the the drafts that we are are working on what's on our mind recently uh sarah do you want to start us off what's your draft
1: my my draft is uh so i'm in this kind of wonderful moment where i'm gathering all this research together for the project I'm doing on, on digital history, uh, and historiography and performance. And one of the things that I am doing is I am having my son play the video game total war empire, which is a historical, uh, role-playing video game where you recreate the, uh, road, you know, the, the road to independence of, of, uh, the evolution of the United States. And I'm really grateful to him that he is doing this, that he's playing this video game, because I do not have time to learn all of the intricacies of this video game. But I, I'll i be darned if I know how exactly I'm going to take what he is doing in this game and apply it to uh, to the work that I'm doing. And I think there is a connection. But every time I try to sort of put it down, I just ask all these like questions like... What is the significance of, of this? So, uh, so I find myself reading quite widely beyond my area of expertise uh, into video game research and and looking at video game studies and uh, and then platform studies and it it just becomes an all expansive field. But it's 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 quite fun. So and I do recommend if you can motivate your children uh, to start earning back some of their you know, massive <laughs> expenses over the years in in service to research. It's it's working out quite well. So so kudos so, to him so for playing it.
0: So he's playing this game so that he can then later sort of explain it to you and narratize it to you so that you can then write about it. Is that right?
1: Well, no, it's even, he, yes, some of that, but also so that I can play it without having to do the hard work of learning all, all the intricacies, ah. right? So it's like, he's kind of yes. like building like an Ikea furniture where I get to go in and like turn the screws for the final time and then say I <laughs> right. built it uh you know and it's and you know it's 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 working out it's working out well so he's sort of cutting the cutting the the tangent on how to get me from there to there but uh but it does raise interesting questions about methodologies and how how to approach this work and so i'm just i'm you know reading city of the dead perhaps you know came back to me i'm like oh i got to spend more time just like playing this video game figuring out what the heck is going on
0: uh harvey what are you, what are you mulling over what are you drafting
1: What am I doing right now?
2: Well, I am working on my last issue as editor of Theater Survey. My last issue is the September, 2016 issue, uh, which actually goes into press sometime in June. Uh, So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what that last issue will be. It also uh, coincides with the 60th anniversary of ASTR. And How do I think about anniversary celebrations uh, with this last offering? I guess from me uh, as editor, so I'm thinking about that. But while that's all occurring, I'm just fascinated by Donald Trump. Yeah, and yeah. I take every moment I can to watch press conferences and uh, his public remarks being aired all over the place because it's a fascinating study of bravado, overconfidence narcissism uh, that somehow is attractive and alluring to a large group of people whose self-identity is contrary uh, and in many ways opposed uh, to what Donald Trump stands for. So I'm just kind of fascinated by the whole performance that is Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't figure out on the evening of the Iowa caucuses what result I wanted. In a way, I was so much more loathing of Ted Cruz that I was like, I want Trump to win. <laughs> like, I want Cruz to go away.
1: I put this on my blog, but but I find uh, comfort's not the word, but horror in the the similarities to the way that Walter Benjamin talks about the rise of the dictator in response to recording technology in the footnotes to uh, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And, and there's, I put a section of there and it's, it it, it actually speaks to the Trump phenomenon. So, so perfectly that I I find both again, some comfort and given that, you know, Benjamin is writing this in 1936, uh, not a small amount of horror uh, at the, at those similarities, but, but I, I'm right there with you. I think Trump is a, a fascinating phenomenon. He should be in our next, she should be a segment on our next episode.
2: Well, maybe Sarah can go over to Maine, over, over to uh, uh, New Hampshire, rather, from Maine and get an interview with uh, Donald Trump.
1: I, I, I totally would. And I will say that, that moving from you know, Buffalo, New York to, to you know, down, down east Maine, very close to the Massachusetts and the New Hampshire uh, state lines, I get all the New Hampshire political advertising on TV now. So it's, uh, it's pretty great. And we caucus in Maine. So I'm super psyched to, like, caucus as opposed to privately vote. So
0: That's another great research topic. Great I mean, performative
1: right. political moment. Yeah. That's right.
0: My draft is, uh, you know, it's related to this issue that's been coming up. We've talked about it on a prior recording. Issues of diversity and inclusion in, in um, uh, university theater productions. It's just, you know, it's an issue, a cluster of issues that a lot of departments deal with. And with the you know, ill-advised and controversial productions at Kent State and at Clarion University um, uh, this year, uh, you know, the sort of issues of casting across race in various situations sort of made the jump from mainstream, not mainstream, but from, you know, professional theater to university theater. Um, And I feel like we've all had a lot of Conversations about this that sort of rehash a lot of the fundamental premises and problems of this. But at Brown University, there was you know a production of a play called I believe the Well Runs Dry, and it it featured um, uh, First Nations characters. And the cast uh, did not was a diverse cast, but it didn't include anyone you know uh, any First Nations people. And I think that this and other Happenings there provoked a kind of, you know, summit of faculty and students to talk about precisely this issue. Um, And I believe that uh, Patricia Ybarra has published uh, a long sort of statement and account of what happened there, Um, I think possibly on the Atha website. I'm not sure, you you can find it if you Google it, but it's really great. I mean, both uh, I think in in, in terms of a model of how a community of theater makers, including students and professors, come together to discuss a difficult issue, um, but also some of the terminology that that she deploys. She she talks about coalitional casting as being an example of what they did in that play where, you know, actors are playing, uh, you know, a, uh, someone of a, a racial and ethnic identity that is not their own, but whereas that, you know, that often goes haywire or creates some real problems, you know, she talks about this phenomenon that she calls coalitional casting which would be a diverse group of student actors coming together precisely to tell you know the story of a less uh, lesser represented population um at any rate I don't think it you know solves any problems but I felt like it was just a really it was a good read and a and a, a think you know a way towards um a more positive future in terms of how universities cast their shows ONTAP is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and the Master's Program in Theater and Performance Studies. Mary Ellen Vander Hayden produces the program. You can find us on the web at www.ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for on Tap, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.